What a great song. One of the best things we can do is tell the Lord that we need him. And Jesus himself is most honored by and through that simple prayer. It's a prayer that all people can pray. And it's the prayer that we bring to this um, text, this book, the Bible, as we open up to find God. And so I'll ask you to, to join me as we tell God that we need him. Lord, we need you. Jesus, we need you. Without you this morning, um, we're just kind of going through motions, but we certainly don't want to go through motions. We want to open up this book by faith and you by grace. Um, please bless us. Thank you for this opportunity to worship you. Would you, O oh Lord, reveal to us the light yoke of Christ? We praise you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, after uh, moving here in 2019, I'll never forget one of the first interactions that I had in my new neighborhood. Um, I think it was day two of us actually being down here after we bought and moved into our new home. Uh, Lizzie and I heard the doorbell ring. And uh, I went to the door and I opened it and I saw this sweet little old lady neighbor standing there on my doorstep holding out to me a pie saying, welcome to the neighborhood, honey. And I'm from Jersey, right? So at first I thought that I was about to get ambushed. Um, I thought I was being set up by the mob or something. But anyways, I took the risk. I went outside and I'm glad I did because she was being sincere. She was actually saying welcome and extending to me a pie. And uh, Lizzie came to the door with her nine-month pregnant belly, and it was the first time I heard that wonderful phrase, bless your heart. <laughs> I thought she was being sincere. Um, she said, word on the street, honey, is that you're a pastor. I just want to let you know that I go to a Bible-believing church, believe in the Virgin Mary, in the Holy Scriptures, in Jesus Christ, and the final resurrection. And I was like, wow, I am not in Jersey anymore. Um... What an introdu introduction to the South. What a new culture. Never hear that. I'd never heard that before, especially in the first sentence of a first conversation with a stranger. When I first got down here, I was so excited to live on mission for Jesus, shine a light in the community. My family and I signed up for the local pool. We, uh, I actively went to the gym on mission with the missional intention to share the gospel. And every Saturday we went down to the GSA soccer fields ready to meet non-Christians and people who had no experience with church. But to my surprise, I did not meet these type of people or the people that I was expecting to meet. Yes, there were certainly non-believers there, but the distinction found in this crowd was this, that most of the people that I found and interacted with at first, after one or two conversations, I found out had experience with the Christian faith or were familiar with it at least. Whether that be personally or through family or through friends, I started to understand that term, the Bible Belt. The, the church is present here in the South. Jesus is not taboo. And further, the church not only has a presence, but it has a made an impact and although you and I live in Metro Atlanta, and I do believe indeed this um, culture is changing, it is still here. And with it comes stories and experiences and wounds and preconceived notions as to what Jesus and his church and people are like. And so what an opportunity we have 
But in order for us to engage in this opportunity or mission, it takes intentionality with wisdom and discernment to mingle with people to be effective. When I first arrived here, the leaders asked me, James, what are you going to do with our church? What is our new mission or vision statement going to be? And I responded and I said, well, what if we waited three to five years to find that out? What if we paused and you allowed me to figure out this culture and we together turned to the Lord and asked him who is in this immediate context and who he's bringing to our church and then lay it out. And so after four years, the truth is this. By and large, this is who God is bringing to our church and who we are as a people. People who have experience with Christianity with stories and backgrounds. Not everyone, but it's a big number, absolutely the majority. And what we need to know for certain and be aware of is that come with, come, uh, come with all these people uh, also comes wounds. Wounds that need to heal. Hearts that need a place to rest. A place for, that we can provide for people to ask questions and doubt safely. And most of all, for those people to be cared for by uh, and through Jesus and the good news that only he can bring. In other words, we as a church do not only exist to care for Christians, but we also are seeking to tend to people who are toting the lines of Christianity and or revisiting it. Why? Because although they might come here and think they're Christians or label themselves as Christians, they may indeed not be. And right now, all they need is the gospel of grace to encounter God for the first time or re-encounter him for the way that he encounters himself to be or intends himself to be encountered. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to the book of Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning, verses 25 through 30, five verses. We're in the second week of our sermon series. You'll see it up there on, this, on the screen. It's called Discovering Parkview. Last week, I told you the story of our church. This week, what I want to do is show you our new mission, our new mission statement. You ready? Here it is. We are creating a place for the wounded and weary to find rest and care from Christ and his people. And say it one more time. I want you to get this. What are we doing? We are creating a place for the wounded and weary to find rest and care from Christ and his people. This morning, it's my intention from this text to show you this. And for those of you who take notes, I have three points, and those three points are this. Number one, I'd like to show you how Jesus deals with the weary. Number two, I'd like to show you how Jesus deals with the wounded, which is all of us. And lastly, how Jesus gives the gift of himself. Jesus and the weary, Jesus and the wounded, and Jesus and the gift of himself. We're going to begin our time together by reading the text out front. If you have a Bible or cell phone, that's great. You can follow along up on these screens. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me. 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you Jesus and the wounded. What I'd like to do with this passage this morning as we begin to focus in on it um, is really focus in on verses 28 through 30. But in order for us to dial in on those few verses, uh, there is one thing, however, I'd like to show us found in verses 25 through 27. And that is this. It's that Jesus is the revelation of God himself. If you look there in verse 25, uh, Christ is uh, speaking about the topic of truth revealed, the idea of revelation. And then in verse 27, he says, he doesn't say that. He says this, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. What Jesus is doing here is speaking of his divine relationship with God. The fact that our God is triune, one God consisting of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying here is that he comes in the name of God with the authority of God as the Son of God himself. And thus being so, he is the only way to knowing God the Father in heaven. And here's what I think. I think oftentimes what happens in our culture when people hear of this idea of religious exclusivity, that Jesus indeed is the only way, what it provokes in people is a type of turning off, a type of bad taste in the mouth, and understandably so, especially if this one truth here is said or preached by people in a certain way. But what if I showed you That here, Jesus is preaching and teaching this one truth in a way different way. In a way unlike much of what we have heard or experienced with this teaching before. That here, as Jesus points to himself as the only way to the Father, he is not being prideful, he is not being arrogant or haughty. But rather what he is doing is seeking to extend mercy with gentleness and love. What we have here in this text is the author, Matthew, not just giving us a revelation of who Christ is, but further showing us what Jesus is actually like. And this is the heartbeat of Christianity, a.k.a. the gospel. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, being God himself, which he is, the revelation of the Father, then the good news of the gospel that we see here through him is that God is a God who longs to be known. That he isn't a God far off, better, or away, too good for a broken world full of sin, suffering, and decay, but rather enters physically this planet to show and reveal his face. And not just show and reveal his face, but if you look there in verse 28, to extend to people an invitation, which begins with these words, come to me. Who is he speaking of or who does he have in mind? All who labor and are heavy laden. 
My brothers and sisters, this is the heartbeat and the missional aim of God, the God of the universe, the God who sovereignly reigns supreme, the one who was before and is after time, in whom angels bow down in worship. This is who he thinks about and has on his mind. And to, to take a step further and dive a little bit deeper into these two terms that Matthew gives us as labor and heavy laden, I want to consider the context. Jesus here is standing before a crowd of people. This crowd of people were familiar with the time. What was familiar of the time? Religious people who surrounded lay people and constantly burdened them with religious rules and expectations. In the previous section of this chapter, it was the Pharisees that Christ addressed, religious leaders of the time. And what did they do according to Jesus in chapter 23? Well, confessed by Christ himself, this is what they did. They tied up heavy burdensome loads of the Old Testament law, religious obligation and duty, and laid them on people's shoulders, and by doing so, shut the kingdom of God in men's faces. Jesus said that. In other words, they pressured people to do things like go to church, give money to the church, obey and follow all the, all the rules, while at the same time disregarding the, the weightiest matters of the law, which Jesus said in that same chapter were justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The Pharisees of this time here in this text were about nothing more than behavior modification, always concerned with what religion and religious activity looked, with, looked like on the outside. But on the inside, what was the reality? Their hearts were far from God. They did not know him. They were far from loving people. They did not love them. This is why Jesus himself called those religious leaders whitewashed tombs. Because on the outside, they presented themselves as holy, but on the inside, they were nothing better than a dead corpse. And so their faith promotion to these people was no faith promotion at all. It was a burden of heavy religious change which led people to joyless death. That's what religion does. That's what rules without the gospel do. What do they do? They create pride. They create self-righteousness. They create burdens. They create condemnation. They create joylessness. They create shame. And they ultimately all lead to the same place, which is an inevitable for all religious people without Jesus Christ, and that is death. Separation from God. The arrogant always end up thinking they're better, and the desirous always think they're not good enough. This is why I'm about to say what I'm about to say, and what I'm about to say is this. I believe that one of the biggest problems or hindrances to the gospel moving forward in the South is Bible Belt culture. People who, in the name of God, label themselves as Christians because they go to church, pray, and affiliate with a certain political party, but do not actually love Christ or his kingdom mission, which is seeking and saving and extending mercy to the lost. That's where the, the void confession of Christianity is found in the lack of love, care, mercy, and advocacy of justice and pursuit of the lowly and sinner. Where is it found? It's found in holy huddles where Christians stay away from non-Christians. And when some non-Christian actually does find the courage to go to a church, all those so-called religious people do is wave the flag of the denomination and put up the set of 
religious rules. But let me remind you of how Christ used the law and loved sinners. In Jesus, we do not see a God who stayed in heaven and told sinners, elevate yourself to me. In Jesus, we see the God of heaven humbling himself and coming to seek and to save the lost, the wretched and the rebel, the man on the cross, the bleeding woman, the woman at the well, the lame, the sick, the leper. The Son of God came to save and to seek the lost. He advocated for the woman who committed adultery in front of the church. He rejoiced when that bleeding woman broke all those religious laws just by faith to touch him and be healed. He said, away with the Sabbath rules when his disciples were hungry and so they picked grain and ate. And how did they speak of Jesus? These religious people speak of Jesus here in this chapter. You can look yourself. He was called by the Pharisees a drunkard, a glutton, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What do you need to do to be called that? You need to drink a lot. You need to eat a lot. And you need to spend a lot of time with non-Christians for the sake of enjoying them because they're made of the image of God and knowing that only the gospel can make them whole and true. That's Jesus in the scriptures. This is why Jesus is good news for us. Because he comes to the people no one expected him to come for and rejects everyone during the time who uh, they thought he would only accept. Why would I title this first point, The Wounded? Because this is what religion and rules and Bible Belt culture without the gospel does to people. It wounds them. It hinders people from knowing the true gospel, which is grace, knowing the true God, beholding his face in the true Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, what do we learn here other than Jesus cares about people who've been wounded by church and religion? My brothers and sisters, what do we see here other than Jesus caring about people who never feel good enough in the face of religious law? What do we see in Jesus' invitation to the gospel other than a free invitation which says you have to do nothing to have me but just come as you are? Why do I tell you this here from this text? Because this is what I long for our church to be, what I long for us to promote, the type of people we're longing to reach and the mission that we're seeking to practice is intentionally engaging and welcoming sinners for the sake of Christ's salvation. Knowing that he And grace is the only way to touch and know God. We are not about denomination. We are not about behavior modification. We are not about traditionalism, style, or anything like that. There is only one thing that we are about, and it is the Son of God incarnate. Giving himself, displaying his love for wretched men, women, and children on a cross. And why do we as Christians need this too? Because This is also our Savior. Because there's nobody here at this church who is righteous. No, not one. And because we know that to be true, and the accuser uses it to pervert the gospel and hinder us just as he hinders non-Christians from knowing Christ by telling us to work harder, try better, and telling us that we're not good enough. 
Jesus' invitation is free. After I became a Christian in 2009, I, um, after some time, I went to seminary. And uh, not so much an academic guy, but I wanted to preach, and so my mentor told me to go. And I never forget in that first season of being at seminary how much I felt looked down upon, uh, not good enough, unworthy, and uh, stupid. Uh, back in the day, I used to be popular. I used to have like have muscles and, and like listen to rap music and, and play sports. And I always like chilled with the popular crowd. But then I got to seminary and I immersed myself in a, in a culture of people who wear glasses and read books. That's cool if that's you, right? It's just not me. People who know about John Calvin and the reformers, what the heck is that, right? I was new, but I really did love God. And he really did change my heart in a charismatic church. He really did save me. He really made me a new person. And so I went seeking to learn about Jesus from the scriptures. And then I encountered one roommate who bullied me intellectually. Five foot nothing, 115 pounds soaking wet. He bullied me. Every time I tried to talk about God, he corrected me with theology or grammar. And you want to know what that ended up doing to me? making me intimidated in front of smart people who were familiar with the Reformed faith and Presbyterianism. It made me intimidated and it wounded me and took shots at my identity. I felt not good enough and not smart enough to pursue ministry and I'm so glad for the gospel because the entire time I was at seminary, I heard the Holy Spirit speaking to me and reminding me of the moment that I was saved. And what did Jesus do with me? He never told me I had to be good enough, read a certain book, or have all my theological systematics in, point, or in place. He just invited me, that young man, 19 years old, after a night of partying in the nightclub at church on Sunday morning, not even willing to stand for the song. He just invited me as I was and said, son, my son is enough for you. Thus, you are enough. If you look to him, I love you. I love you as you are. And the gospel got me through seminary. And the gospel gets me through the pastorate. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, I will never reject the person who comes to me. Who do we want in these seats other than sinners and people with messy stories? What do we want them to know other than God incarnate dying for sin on a cross. If you're here and all you've ever known of Christianity is rules and religion, I say to you as gentle as I can, but as straightforward as I can, you have not known God. You have known the law of heavy yoke and oppression, thus you're joyless and do not know him. But Jesus wants to make himself known. You don't have to know how to read your Bible. You're free to doubt and ask questions here. You don't have to know what the PCA is. You don't have to be familiar with Reformed theology. You don't have to dress like anybody else, talk like anybody else, have the same story. All you do is need to come and Jesus opens his arms and welcomes you and accepts you just as you are because he loves you. No one has it all together. We're not asking anyone to clean themselves up. Jesus is our Savior. Amen. Well, that was point number one, the wounded. I'd like to show you now the second point, which are the weary. 
Jesus uses this, uh, this term heavy laden here, if you look there in, um, in those verses. And the way that I'm using this term heavy laden here is to refer to those who have known God, who have been laboring him for years, but feel tired and are hurt from life and ministry. My heart breaks for you. I say this, and as I say this, I don't have any individual or group of people on my mind. I have many people on my mind. This here makes up a large group of people at our church. What I want for us to see here in this portion of the text is that Jesus here is making an invitation to those who are finding their loads too hard or heavy to carry and to exchange that yoke for a new yoke. And instead of adding to this yoke oppression, with more things to do, resulting in more weariness, the thing that Jesus promises here from his yoke is an eased burden resulting in rest. What he's actually doing here in this verse is is alluding to Ecclesiastes chapter 51. And if you're familiar with that book, it's about wisdom. And in that chapter, wisdom, Lady Wisdom, invites its hearer to draw near to herself and take on the yoke of instruction with the promise of little labor and finding rest. This is how Old Testament Israel viewed the law in the scriptures and its instruction as true wisdom. But notice here, as Christ alludes to Ecclesiastes chapter 51, instead of offering to this crowd the law, what does he do? He offers himself. Why? Because Jesus is the law. Because Jesus is the word in flesh. And what you and I know from experience with him in a certain way and in a certain sense is that his yoke is not less demanding than Judaism's, but but more. But here's the main difference that you and I need to be reminded of and know for certain. is that Jesus' yoke is a yoke of love and not duty. I'm going to explain that from one commentary this guy named R.T. France said it better than that. He said this, Christ's yoke is the response of the liberated, not the duty of the obligated. Meaning our lives before Jesus and our obedience to him comes after knowing and experiencing his free love and grace. That he being the fulfillment of the law died in our place to appease God on our behalf and by faith in his righteous person and work, you and I as Christians gain a new identity and are counted free. Do you get that? Why would I stop to emphasize this point, which is a point that many Christians are already familiar with? Because although many of us Christians know this, I believe it is the thing that many of us who've been around the block in faith, service and or ministry struggle over the most. Believing that our status or identity before God does not come from what we can do for him or our ministry success, but from Christ alone. Can I be clearer? When does this happen? When are we tempted to believe in something other than that true gospel? When our ministry fails when it doesn't produce the fruit we long for it to see, when it becomes no longer or after the season or position changes. Some of us, um, during these things or after them, are tempted to feel as if 
God loves or values us less. That we're less of a Christian. That we're less special and or affirmed since we lost it. And what happened to make you feel that way is that somewhere along the way, your identity and uh, your identity became the ministry and your ministry uh, became God. I say that as a man who already struggles with this. Okay, I'm I'm emphasizing with you. And now that it's over, Satan has a field day with this idol and uses it to deceive you into thinking that you are no longer special, affirmed, or worthy of God's love. Do you see how Satan seeks to weary and wound the soul and keeps us from resting in the gospel? I just want to tell you that if you're struggling with that and you have a story of service or ministry faithfulness and you don't have that, that season is not any longer. I just want to just remind you that that is a lie from the pit. The gospel is that God loved you before you ever did anything for him. And the reason why he called you to the ministry in the first place is to teach you only about his love. So you could be assured that no matter what the situation or the status or the role or the position or the calling or the season of life, the steadfast love of God for you, child, never changes. You are the same person before, during, and after the ministry. Always. I say this as a, as a gospel comfort to you who struggle with identity. And this weariness that I'm talking about does not only come from ministry experience. It also comes from life itself. Do you know what I'm saying? As Americans, we never take a break. We're always doing. We never stop. We pack our agendas in our calendars. And we never truly rest before God doing nothing but enjoying who he says we are in his presence. This is the beauty of the humanity of Christ that Jesus on road trips stopped to rest on walls, on stone walls, and, and the woman at the well found out that he was thirsty. And what did she do? She served the Son of God a cup of water, and that Son of God took a drink. Even God knows how to be served. Ministry leader, do you know how to be served? I'm learning, just like you. God wants to serve you. That's the gospel for you. And I hope that he uses this church to serve you, this church to serve you. Maybe you're starting to understand why we have set up our ministries at our church this way. Why we don't emphasize programs or events necessarily, although we're, not, we're, we're okay with them. Rather, what we're seeking to do is emphasize people. Because people are who we're made for and the gospel flourishes in community, and in community, real ha- uh, uh, healing and care happen. In gospel-centered community, real healing and care happen. When God works through his people, he works for them, for you. Um, we're like in the season of revitalization, right? And the church, as you can tell, even today is, is revitalizing. But here's the, here's the reality. There are a small number of people here, here at this church, the core group family who have been here for years that need a break. They've been working hard. 
This is in part why we have put limitations on the ministry. And we have all these new people who are coming and our intention for you is to rest and to find care through relationships. That's, not where, that's why we're not always striving to do the next thing or create the next team or invent the next thing. Jesus is teaching us how to take joy in our limitation. And then as we take joy and rest and are just with one another, we view our time together as true gospel ministry because isn't that ministry anyways? The goal of ministry is people. You're the ministry. And according to Ephesians, my job is to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. So you minister to each other, not through a program or an event or a curriculum, but organically through being affectionately desirous with one another. This is how the true gospel of rest permeates the church culture and community. And so if you want to join us, you want to know what it looks like, it starts really simple. It starts during the family five. That's actually a very missional time where we intentionally learn each other's names. It's actually that simple. It starts with learning people's names. Just getting out of your seat or out of your comfort zone. And because you were pursued by God, taking a risk for the sake of Jesus to pursue someone else. I've been saying it for three months. And if everyone waits to be pursued, no one's pursued. But if everyone pursues, everyone pursues. You could join us this way. Make this place beautiful. Sign up for community groups. We want you to belong. We all have anxiety. We all have fear. We're all insecure. Come on. Let's be honest here. We all have messy stories. We all have fights with our spouses before church every once in a while. Our children run a wreck. This is not a place for the perfect. This is the place for the imperfect. And Jesus makes this place perfect. Can we just be honest with each other for a second? Jesus is the one who makes this perfect. And this perfection found in verse one, uh, point one, this gospel of grace is the fuel that he gives us to do it. Free grace for you, for me, and so we can extend it to each other. I ask you, I challenge you, please be known. Please make yourself known. Please, please see new people and seek to make them known. Please pursue them. God wants to know you. We want to know you. If you're new here, I know that's intimidating. You could take your time if you're wounded and acclimate. But if you've been coming here for a little bit and you feel rested and you know that there's gospel, it's time to partake in the mission. A new generation is coming. is being birthed at Parkview Church. If you're here and you're a new family and you're ready, you've been resting and you've been learning the gospel, it is time to step up not by obligation, but by grace, so you can know and experience God and these people through you and their story can do the same. It's time. Come as you are. Come know this Christ as he longs to be known. That was point number two. I said a lot of things I wasn't expecting to say. (laughs) But we're going to finish in point number three. I I guess the last thing I want to say as we finish in point number three is this. This message and this invitation of Jesus does not only extend or apply to those who've been wounded by church or religion or extend and apply to those who are wounded or weary from life or ministry. Then who else is it for? It's for everyone. 
Who is wounded and weary? Everyone. Our lives, our people, our world, our persons have been wounded and weary by the fall. We all need the grace of God. We all need each other. In the garden, it was beautiful and perfect. God dwelt with man and there was sinlessness. Chapter two came. Do you remember? Sin and then what was the product of the curse that fell on men in this world? Toil, labor, shame, murder, pride, anger, abuse. Anything and everything that wearies the human heart, wounds it and treats it unkindly is an effect of the fall. And so we look to the one who reverses that fall. In Romans chapter 5, where Paul himself names Jesus the second Adam. Why is that beautiful? Because that great God-man was not just God, but fully man and lives on Adam and Eve's part. Indeed, the whole human races, you're in my part to complete the expectation to satisfy the holy demand of God. On the cross, empathizes with us in our weakness as he took upon himself the full weight of the curse. Unfam uh, very familiar with everything. And there offered himself, raising from the dead, promising eternal life. That second Adam, Jesus Christ, will one day return for the church. God himself will one day come to dwell again with man in the garden. The, the, the garden uh, will be restored to even greater, more beauty than it was in the beginning. That is our ultimate hope. But what is the hope now? Is that true rest in Christ. True Sabbath rest in Christ is available right now. Hebrews chapter 4. We are, we are able as believers to enter in to the rest of Christ. To know God and to enjoy him. And for our souls to be satisfied. <laughs> this is what is the fuel. Jesus offers himself. He is the true rest. And who does he want other than people like you and me? My brothers and sisters, I pray that we live for mission to invite people into this true Sabbath rest as we wait for the ultimate Sabbath rest to come. Our God is a gracious God. He has not withheld himself, but he has given us the full kingdom of heaven and indeed his very son. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for giving us yourself. I don't know if anyone's tired or weary. I don't know if anyone's wounded or uh, been hurt. But I know that you're the healer and you're the great physician and you're the counsel of the church. Would you take care of your, your flock and tend to your sheep? Make this place a place for the wounded and weary to find rest and care from you and us. So glad that you finally have given us a mission. Now we can view all the ministries with intention and practice love that way too. We praise you and we worship you. Amen.